Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, radiotherapists. We're coming to you live from beautiful, unceded Wurundjeri, Woi Wurrung country. We're so glad that you could join us. My name is Dr Training Wheels and we've got a great show lined up this morning. But before we start, I just wanted to take a moment to express my really sincere disappointment and sadness, not only at the result of yesterday's referendum, but... I think more so the nature of the debate over the preceding weeks and months. Um, My heart really goes out to First Nations listeners who, as a community, I think have borne the brunt of a campaign of often deliberate disinformation. I don't have anything profound to add to the commentary that's been happening uh, this morning and last night since the result came in, but just really want to send my hearts out send my heart out to the um, First Nation listeners this morning and um, just reiterate that First Nations listeners can get help if they need it by contacting 13 Yarn and please just know that radiotherapy have you in our hearts and minds. Um, It's been a bloody big week. I'd also like to acknowledge the distressing events taking place in the Middle East at the moment and send my love to listeners with loved ones in the region. And at times like these, I want to just take a moment to remind listeners that... There's a lot of bad news in the world. Please remember to take care of yourselves in whatever way that means for you. You can switch off your social media. You can switch off your news apps if it's all too much. Um, Hold your loved ones close and remember help is available if you need it. As always, Lifeline are available on 13 11 14. Um, And please take care. I've got my delightful co-hosts in the studio with me this morning. I've got Dr. Moto and Perineum. Perineum, how are you? I'm I'm all right, considering the world that we live in. Mm. You know, it's been a week. It's been a big week, I think, on so many fronts. But it's nice to be here with you all to discuss all things medical. And we've got a pretty interesting show, do we not? I, I think so. I'm quite excited. I'm probably biased. Dr Moto, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, Training Wheels. You haven't been in the studio for a little while? It has been a little while. I've been um, busy. I've been trying to get lots of work done. I have been gallivanting around the world. You do love a bit of a gallivant, I don't you? Um, do also try to keep it real. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool, Just cool know, man. jet setting all over the place, but, you know, grassroots right here. <laughs> keeping it real. That's right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've got a special guest with us in the studio today, but I think I might just hold off introducing her formally because we've got a bit of news. Mm. So let's listen to that and then continue. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Dr. Perineum. Yes. What have you got for us? Well, I have a, f- a few short annou- announcements. Great. First off, I would just like to acknowledge to all my lovely Allied Health individuals, yesterday was International Allied Health Day and as all of us in this room know, Allied Health makes our 
health system function. Makes the world go round. Makes the world go round. So I want to do a big shout out to all our allied health professionals out there listening because not only are you an integral part of our health and wellness community, but you really advance our patients' healthcare and their quality of life. And that's really important. And I want you to take a little moment to give yourself a pat on the back for all the hard work that you do. Often under-recognised, under-appreciated, but absolutely essential. And there's so many people that consider themselves in that space and they each and every one of them contributes to a patient population and and improving their lives. So big shout out to them. Fully agree. Here, here. Woo! Today is also the end of National Podiatry Week and about a month ago we had the beautiful John Osborne on who is a podiatrist and... Speaking wow. of underrecognized feet, man. So, so underrecognized. Use every day, and, all the time. <laughs> um, so big shout out to all the podiatrists out there. Dr. Moto's just stolen my notes because he's realised <laughs> that I've written them all on the back of my... Uh, male urology notepad, which he's thinking is quite fun. It's a really term. lovely diagram. It's of a the lovely diagram. So tract. I'm giving everyone a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting picture on the it's back of my notepad. It's a for a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> my next little news item is, I thought, quite interesting. It popped up on my news feed yesterday and I think there's some questionable ethics about Ooh, this. I love that. AI is really hot topic at the moment and we all know that in the medical field it's this kind of uh, bugbear. Some people have started to use it but there's not a lot of ethics around it. It's very questionable about how it's used, what it's used for and I think this is a really emerging space about the ethics of sensitive information, particularly around patients and the use of AI, because they, particularly most AIs, are they gather source. So if you've got patient information and they're taking source from that particular information, you're, yes, creating a database, but also that's someone's personal information and you don't technically have the right to have it. But Google have just announced a product called Vertex AI, which they are launching in the near future, which is specifically targeted for medical professionals. And it's designed to be tuned to look for clinical information. Not that everyone loves this idea, but you often will go to a doctor and they're like, I don't know what that is. Let me look on Google. And so... (laughs) Definitely what I do. Yeah. (laughs) But... You know, healthcare professionals still need to be able to source information, whether it be from journal articles or from other clinical sites or or things like that, to get the most up-to-date information. And so Google has launched this idea of this AI that will go out, look for clinical sources and come back with what's the most up-to-date sort of situation. So does that mean I could, like, type in, my patient has a headache, question mark, and it'll chuck out the questions I should ask to rule out red flags? I think so. I think it depends on how you're using it. Um, I think the idea that they have for it is that you can go to it with a clinical question. So let's say something in my space. I might have a patient that has a prolapse after a hysterectomy and I want to know whether they can use a particular type of estrogen cream to help with their medical history. Okay, so specific questions as well as general. Mm. Um, Or it could be something like, what are the signs of a heart attack? You'd hope your doctor knows, but you never know. (laughs) It's good to refresh your knowledge. My question is, and I guess I just pose this to our general 
reader, like listenership because I think it's really interesting. Google have done it so that it is able to actually access things in electronic health records and create AI searches based off someone's health record, right? So what are the implications for clinical decision-making if you've got someone who's a really poor historian and so their health background or their health record is really confusing is that going to muddy the waters for clinical decision making if you're relying on a tool like this that isn't able to look at the patient in front of us and then second to that is and lots of people don't think about it but we are unfortunately moving more in the private sphere towards the american model of healthcare, and there are individuals who have Often doctors or clinicians will make a query about a diagnosis which will be in the health records for a patient. So say, for example, someone came in to me as a physiotherapist and they had um, a sore hand and they'd hurt their wrist or something was going on, they had some swelling, those kinds of things. My differential diagnosis might include things like arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or carpal tunnel, things that could be borderline chronic. And if those words are picked up using an AI software, it can actually disqualify people from getting life insurance or health insurance. Whoa. And so the question is, are these tools even though they're really valuable, actually going to be used to limit people's access based off an algorithm that isn't able to make clinical decisions because they're not looking at a patient. And it's really grey area. Do you know, Perineum, this sounds like it's all new, like TBC hasn't actually launched yet, but is it going to be accessible to the general public? It, I think that's the idea is that mm. it's a it's a device. So Google has all of these plugins that you can use into your everyday life and I think the idea is that this will be one of those opt-in plugins mm-hmm. that is designed to be an AI with a filter on it effectively mm. but anyone could access it hypothetically. Dr Modo, what are your thoughts? That is, that is so fascinating um, and, you know, I'll add an, another dimension to that perineum because – you know, in the the age of evidence-based medicine, everything we do have to be derived from or the decision-making ideally is shared with the patients and their carers, but also derived from evidence-based, mm-hmm. prospective clinical trial validated evidence-based. And evidence is being laid down at such a rapid rate. There mm-hmm. are new treatments, new cancer treatments, new mm-hmm. dermatology treatments. You know, um, this has been laid down at such a rapid point, uh, at such a rapid rate, uh, the AI will pick up a lot of novel and seemingly promising, if not just plain effective interventions out there, but they're not available in clinical use or they might not be ready um, and, you know, side effects and things like that need to be further studied. And contrasting that with existing practices, a lot of our practices are actually not evidence-based because, and, and that's not an indictment on our practices. It's just the fact that, you know, clinical trial design and randomized, placebo-controlled, blinding, these it's kinds slow. of, these it's methodologies... These methodologies really came to the fore in the 80s, 90s. Mm. And a lot of what we do, such as prescribing um, certain uh, antibiotics, you know, particularly your sort of amoxicillin-type antibiotics, um, a lot of our surgical procedures, they are done prior to the 90s, mm. right? And a lot of the surgical procedures, it's almost impossible to do randomized 
um, placebo-controlled trials with. So, you know, um, anyway, my, my, the point I'm trying to get at is that it could create, create some confusion as to uh, throwing out what we know is established and works um, and perhaps heralding in too enthusiastically things that are emerging. The other thing that it was a really good point that was in the discussion was the fact that it's not actually able to evaluate the mm. quality of the evidence. Mm. And there's a lot of evidence that comes out that is biased, mm. particularly out of the states because of the fact that we have drug trials influencing the journal articles that are being made and pharmaceutical companies are publishing slightly skewed data in terms of outcomes for medication. And if that's the case, it's taking information from a very wide source and it's not actually able to discern "Mm, actually I'm looking at this paper it had really good outcomes however you know xyz was was an in factor of of how that was judged so I think it's going to be have to be taken with a real grain of salt until they can actually get the the program to be better at filtering what's going through it or is able to make smarter choices about where it's sourcing its information from. Fascinating. Mm. Thanks for bringing it, Perineum. That's no a, dramas. Watch this space. The other piece of news oh, I Oh, another one. I've got one more. Go on. One more. I just want a quick <laughs> shout out. So I was reading because I found it really interesting. There was a um, journal that got published on the 10th of October in Urology um, talking about PET imaging, so positron emissions technology, and they're using a particular biomarker to image and monitor the progressive neurotransitional degeneration in Parkinson's disease. I clearly need another copy if I can't get all of that out (laughs) in one word. Anyway, I thought this was really interesting. So Parkinson's disease, I didn't realise, but they're now, the understanding now is that based off some of the studies that they've looked at with this particular Um, imaging technique is that they think that basically there is neurodegenerative change 20 years before there is a detectable symptom symptom onset Hmm. and normally it's then a further three years before people are clinically diagnosed Hmm. and can start to get treatment and so with this particular imaging protocol what they were looking for is and they compared groups of individuals between people who had confirmed Parkinson's disease, people who had um, a REM sleep disorder and had neurological control. So they had these three groups of population because often you can get neurological change with REM sleep disorders, but it doesn't progress. So you can get changes to the way your brain functions, but it doesn't become degenerative. It doesn't get worse over time. And so they used these three subsets and they could see at a two-year interval they were able to detect change in this Parkinson's group with this particular type of imaging and they predict with mathematical modelling that they'll be able to basically pick up Parkinson's earlier with using a positron emission technology, which is a relatively non-invasive form of imaging, and, and hopefully get people a to treatment sooner, but also we'll be able to start to get clinical trials about interventions at a much Mm. earlier stage where we haven't actually gone to neurodegenerative Mm. um, disease state and, and that's really interesting in terms of how we manage Parkinson's and the the clinical output. Just linking this 
latest breaking news to what we were talking about before. It's a it's a perfect example. You know, for the longest time, we have thought that Parkinson's is a disease of the substantia nigra, where the dopamine receptive cells and uh, tissue have died off over time, and we thought that it was a disease where you can localize it to a small part of the brain called mm -hmm. the substantia nigra, and it's now becoming very clear that that's not the case. Yeah. Um, and there are early findings in Parkinson's disease, such as what you shared, Perineum, in that um, article. And we've also known now increasingly that there are um, problems with brain networks and brain network dynamics that predate Parkinson's disease. And it's probably more a network disorder, mm -hmm. not just localized to a small part of the brain. So, you know, and they've been targeting treatments at that network with really effective um, outcomes. So, um, you know, things are changing at a rapid pace. And if you were to ask AI, you know, they will probably just say it's this or that, and it could be too new or too old. So it's very, um, it's, a, it's an in interesting a phenomenon to observe. Absolutely. Oh, that's so exciting. There's been some um, progress and development in understanding Parkinson's better. It's a hugely debilitating condition and um, early treatment hopefully can help some people. Yeah, exactly. Yep. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Dr Moto and I and many others had the very great fortune this past week of attending the inaugural Asia-Pacific Women's Mental Health Conference. The program was full of extremely highly esteemed local and international speakers, and I think I speak for both of us when I say that it was a couple of days very well spent, a lot of very important discussion. Dr Moto, would you like to jump in there to talk about the program, or should I introduce our guest first? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'm be, I'd be delighted to talk about the program. Um, sorry for those who missed out, but it will happen again. Um, <laughs> we had uh, uh, two jam-packed days of... Um, presenters both nationally as well as internationally. Um, the official conference opening address, address was delivered by the Honourable Jed Kearney, um, Assistant Minister for Health and Aged Care. Um, we had experts from the United States of America, um, from the United Kingdom, um, from uh, the westernmost point of the country, from the north, from the south. We had presenters from Tasmania, forensic psychiatrist who works um, in uh, a women's prison in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. So all around the country, all around the world, it was an amazing couple of days and uh, it was just um, such a, um important uh, field to really promote and talk more about and do good research um, in, you know, in, in, in women's mental health. And to that point, the conference was really well represented by clinicians, researchers, people with lived experience, carers, healthcare administrators, politicians. I can go on and on and on, but, you know, I'm actually really dying to hear about our special guest. So I'll pass back to you. Thank you. So one of the esteemed guests at the conference is in the room with us now again. Can you believe it? Uh, her name is Dr. Tracy Barber. She is a psychiatrist all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. 
She's a psychiatrist and the medical director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation Clinical Service. Whoa, that's a mouthful. Mm. Uh, Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation is also known as TMS. So we'll we'll say TMS for the rest of the um, show. Um, Dr. Barber is a specialist in using neuroimaging or brain imaging to characterise patient presentations and to individualise treatment. And we're really very honoured and happy, pleased to have you in the studio with us this morning, Dr. Barber. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Can you cast your mind back probably quite a few years now and tell us if there was a moment that you recall deciding or when you knew that psychiatry was for you? Yeah, there was no special moment. No, uh uh-huh. Yeah, it was a series of events, I think, that eventually led me down the path of psychiatry. Started out when I was in university, and uh, my my father said, okay, you're studying, but you also have to get a job and uh, work a little bit. So So annoying how that happened. I know, I know. (laughs) So I, I worked at a obstetrics and gynecology clinic and I was doing a lot of things like surgery scheduling front desk uh, medical records just a lot of things and I was spending a lot of time there I got to know a lot of the patients and I started noticing there were a lot of patients female patients with really these pain syndromes these pelvic Mm. floor pain syndromes that no one really knew what was going on people would say things like oh this person's kind of crazy. And I felt really bad for them. Um, and, you know, I, I really sort of noticed this. And in the context of this, really this led me down the path of research where initially I started working in a lab that we looked at how um, emotion affects pain perception. Mm. Uh, we looked at a lot of other things as well, but that's how I fell in love with neuroimaging and started sort of thinking more about, oh, wow, this is kind of cool how we can image the brain and see how different parts light up during different paradigms. Um, and then in medical school, I wanted to continue doing this. So I started working in the neuroimaging lab of Dr. Vibhav Dwadkar, where we were looking at the children of people with schizophrenia and looking at whether we could identify predictors of later onset of schizophrenia. And at this point, I don't know how I didn't realize I would go into psychiatry. (laughs) It was a surprise to everyone but you. I don't don't believe it. The other way around, I guess. Uh, Yeah, so, and then as I was going through my clinical rotations, I found myself really drawn to the people who had, in addition to whatever physical issue they were in the hospital with, their mental issues. Um, And I would sit with these patients and they would talk about how, yeah, they're undergoing sort of cancer treatment, but their main thing that they're concerned about is their panic disorder. And um, so this kind of continued and somehow I still didn't realize I wanted to go into psychiatry and I actually was between psychiatry and surgery Mm. and um, both very invasive specialties um, and in different ways. Yes, Mm. in very different ways. Mm. But uh, so I kind of 
weighed it and then eventually chose psychiatry. And I'm so glad that I did. It's such a broad field and, you know, I feel very rewarded. I mean, what is it about mood disorders that sort of gets you going? Or is it more the neuroimaging that led to your fascination and, and interest and specialty in mood disorders? Um, so I became interested in mood disorders um, when I was looking at um, studying the children of people with schizophrenia because many of them had this symptom called anhedonia prior to actually developing psychosis. And anhedonia, for those of you who don't know, is just the symptom where uh, your reward response, your ability to enjoy things, look forward to things, be interested in things is just blunted or absent. Mm -hmm. And this is also present in depression. So I started sort of comparing the two symptoms and different disorders and became interested in mood disorders in that way. And then when I was in you know, residency um, studying to be a psychiatrist, most of my patients had mood disorders, so um, I just found really rewarding to work with people with mood disorders. In terms of bang for your buck, they're just everywhere, aren't they? Oh, mood yeah. disorders. Actually, I was looking it up this morning, and in Australia, one in five women will be diagnosed with depression in their lifetime, and one in eight men. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Massive. And... Tell us a bit about treatment-resistant depression, because it's an area of particular interest of yours, if I understand correctly. Yeah, so there are different definitions of treatment-resistant depression, but essentially what it is is, um, you know, the typical medications or therapies that you would prescribe to treat depression don't work, or they don't work enough to provide enough support for the person to get back to their life, to get back to work to care for themselves, to care for their family. And as many as 30% of people who are diagnosed with depression, you know, these typical treatments don't work for them. So it's actually a lot of people. Yeah, so that one in four women and one in eight men, is that what you said? One in five women. One in five women yeah. and one in eight men. Around 30% of those, the, the usual treatments that we provide for depression don't work for them. Correct. Yep, okay. And... What does that look like for someone? Uh, well, most of the time, people have a hard time, you know, working. Um, you know, they'll say, I, you know, I'll see a, a lot of women who say, you know, I, I want to be there for my kids, but I'm just dead inside and I'm just faking it. And I think my kids can tell. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people who just want to be present. Um, but they just feel like a burden to their family and they just want to get back and do the regular things that they were doing before. And in terms of tr depression being treatment resistant, what sort of timeline are people looking at there? Like how long are people suffering these symptoms and not able to get better for before we call them treatment resistant? I think it's too long, <laughs> honestly. I, I think, you know, the most, most of the people I see have been depressed for years. Mm. And that's, that's unacceptable to me. That's, that's way too long. By that time, you know, getting back to work seems very daunting. By that time, their family structure has changed to accommodate the depression. So the sooner we can get people better and get them back to their lives, the better. Um, 
in terms of typically people have to have tried several different antidepressants and therapies and just a trial can take you know 12 weeks 6 to 12 weeks so it could be a year or two before people start throwing around the word treatment resistant mm. Can I ask, is there a difference in terms of what you're looking at with your imaging in your clinical presentation of like a classic depression versus something like postpartum? I I don't know. Yeah, mm. I haven't specifically looked at postpartum depression. Um, and, and I think in terms of the basic structures, I think we – we believe they probably are very similar. Mm. Symptomatically, they're they're pretty similar, um, and we're primarily looking at a change in network dynamics, hyperactivity of a network called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. This is a network where you know if you're in the shower or you're just sort of mind wandering, it kind of is more active. And it's actually a good thing to have it active. It's when people are more creative, people have a lot more ideas, but in depression, it becomes hyperactive. It's when people tend to ruminate more, they can't really get out of their own mind. And because of that, they appear very distracted, mm -hmm. um, just very internally focused. So for people who have, because I also work in women's health, funnily enough, but I also see the women who've been classified with these pain uh, presentations and unfortunately it's very common for there to be medical gaslighting insofar as, oh, it's not that bad or this isn't really happening or da-da-da. And the presentation of, of how their pain and perception changes for them, do you get people coming in just wanting something concrete to say there's change here? There's a reason for what's going on at, at a central nervous system level as to what's going on in their body. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is just validation yeah. of their experience. Yeah. Uh, yes, a lot of people are looking for that where we can say, you're not the only one. You're not making this up. Mm. We understand that this is happening to you and, uh, and we want to help you. And, and there are treatments out there. Yeah. What are they? Tell us. <laughs> you, you segued for me. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I specialize in, in um, neuromodulation um, and uh, training wheels. You talked about it earlier, transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS. And it's a neuromodulatory therapy uh, that uses a powerful, rapidly changing magnetic field. Um, it's placed, you know, we have this something called a TMS coil that generates a magnetic field. We place it on the scalp and we send these, uh, pulses, magnetic field pulses towards areas of the brain that we know are affected in the disorder with, that we're treating. So if it's depression, we target a certain area of the brain and depending on the frequency of these pulses, we can cause that area of the brain to either increase in activity or decrease in activity. And, and we decide that based on the patient's presentation and, and what area of the brain that we're actually targeting. Um, but even though we're targeting one small area of the brain, we know the brain is composed of networks. And if you change activity within one 
node of that network, it'll lead to downstream effects in other areas that are both structurally and functionally connected to it. So we changed network dynamics, and that's what leads to improvement in symptoms. And TMS treatment, it's not just a one and done, where you get one, you come in one day, we give you a, a treatment, and then you're done. Um, it's a course of treatment, so people come in you know, daily for treatment, and uh, that leads to gradual cumulative effects. From, from my reading about this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, uh, I liken it to those for those sort of trying to get their head around it. It's using technology similar to an MRI machine in terms of the magnetic coiling, but it sounds to me similar in terms of treatment protocol to what we now know as radiotherapy insofar as for cancer patients, it used to be that they would just ablate cells with this really broad spectrum dose of radiation to try and kill off the cells. And as we've gotten better at treating, we're now able to pinpoint and and use it to sort of cross map. So they'll use these really targeted amounts of radiation in a very particular point to get exactly the right area. But this is using that, but in a magnetic way. So it's not a radiation source to target a really specific area. Am I right? Uh, yes. Um, I, it's so t- unlike radiotherapy, TMS is probably not as focal. Yeah. You know, we're we're hitting a much larger area of the brain, and it's using sort of a different power source mm-hmm. to change activity. Yeah, right. In terms of the time frame for your treatment, how quickly do people see results? Uh, it depends on the schedule. Really. Um, So the most commonly utilized uh, protocol for TMS is people come in once a day, Monday through Friday, over the course of weeks. Um, And it's it's very variable. I've seen people start noticing improvements, you know, within the first week. Mm. Um, I would say on average, people start to really say, I'm really noticing something around treatment 20. And honestly, we do see the improvements sooner, but a lot of these people who've had so many failed treatments before, they don't want to get their hopes up. Mm -hmm. So they're like, I don't know. I don't really want to say anything yet. I just want to, you know, it might go away. So I'm just going to ignore it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So around treatment 20 so. And do they have to be inpatients for this or is it an outpatient procedure that they can come into the hospital to, to get done? Uh, I would say at least in the States, the bulk of it is outpatient. And I'm not sure if that's the same here or not. Do we have access to this technology here? Dr. Modo. Uh, yeah, so um, TMS has been available in Australia for probably the best part of the last 20 years. Um, and a couple of years ago, it received... Um, uh, Medicare approval as well as a Medicare-funded treatment. Um, prior to that, most TMS in Australia has been conducted in the inpatient, private inpatient setting, but it is a very safe treatment. It doesn't require, you know, people to be anesthetized or have, you know, special supervisory precautions or anything like that. People can very easily drive in, have their 30-minute treatment session, and nowadays we provide quicker treatment sessions um, and drive home afterwards or go back to work or look out, go home and look after the, the um, attempt to their, um, get on with their lives. Mm. Um, so it's pretty easy and there are more and more outpatient um, access for this treatment now. Can I ask... Is there a difference between how men and women respond to such a treatment? 
There is, actually. So there was a really large um, sort of analysis of um, this huge database of people who had received treatment for uh, for depression in the United States, over 7,000 people within this database. And um, they were able to, they looked at things like what predicts good outcomes? Is it age? Is it sort of the target that the treatment had been directed to. And what they found is actually there was this huge, this pretty big sex effect where women were more likely to respond to men. So one instance where the gender gap actually plays in our favor. Women. Yeah. <gasps> Finally. Finally. <laughs> I, I think our brains are just a bit uh, dense to change. You know? What can I say? I have no, no better defence. I mean, look, we've got to have a win at some point for the girls. Oh, part of um, Dr. Barber's presentation at the conference this week, it was it was pretty niche, and I'm still getting my head around it, to be perfectly honest, but it was a question about whether the female sex hormones have some contributing um, role to play in the reason that women are responding better to TMS. And I think it's still sort of TBC, not... Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, interesting for sure. Um, what's your favourite part of being a psychiatrist, finally? Uh, of course, it's uh, the patients, seeing people get better. Like I said, I see patients typically with, you know, treatment-resistant depression and and to see them come in and they say, you know, I... I haven't been feeling well for the last couple of years. And then in the end, see them say, wow, I can actually engage with my kids. I think I want to, you know, finish my degree or I'm starting to get my, you know, resume back together to go back to work. It's just really rewarding to see, you know, people get better. It's amazing. Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining us on Radiotherapy this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you um, and I hope we can see you again. But you have come such a long way, so not in a hurry. (laughs) Or maybe via Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr. Moto is going to tell us a bit about what he's what's been keeping him busy um, in the theme on the theme of TMS, and just quietly, it's been keeping me busy too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so several things have been keeping me busy, um, but. Uh, just to keep today's um, brief talk um, still related to the field of transcranial magnetic stimulation, and I'm very grateful to my colleague, Dr. Barber, for rounding out you know, what is TMS and its application and depression and how treatment-resistant depression is a you know, pr- very common problem and we really need to devise better treatments for it. So um, I suppose maybe a good place to start is by way of a very brief background. So um, TMS is a treatment that's been around for um, close to 30 years. Um, in Australia alone, it was approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration or the TGA for 16 years, just doing quick arithmetic in my mind, um, and it's been FDA approved for about that period of time as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a you know, evidence-based, proven treatment for um, a long period of time. And in that time, there has been hundreds of clinical trials and 
at least half that number. So at least sort of 50 or so, you know, really well-designed, prospective, sham-controlled, blinded, randomized trials, right, to demonstrate its efficacy in treating depression. However, um, the vast majority of trials have not been able to um, surpass that depression response rate um, or treatment response rate of, let's just say, about 40 to 50 percent. It varies on, a bit. It varies a little bit, depending on which study you read, with the exception of this very intensive, very accelerated, um, very crammed treatment schedule called the Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy, or the SAME program, which I won't talk about too much now. Um, but um, standard TMS, as Dr. Barbara described it, response rate, 40 percent thereabouts. And um, we're now starting to understand that in order for TMS to have its therapeutic effects, when you're stimulating the brain region that's connected to the depression network you're trying to affect, um, you do need to, it, it would help to prime the brain cells so that it can facilitate more effective and healthier electrical signal transmission um, before, you know, to um, which is what TMS really aims to do. It's trying to facilitate healthy electrical transmission across these large-scale networks. Um, and, you know, we use a compound to facilitate that process. Um, and, you know, we're, um, we've been running a trial for probably the past 6 to 12 months now um, where we have a, um, a compound that's um, very safe. Um, it's been around for a long time. It's well-known. Um, and we give um, people... Um, this uh, medication two hours before their treatment sessions um, and to see if it might have better results. Um, the idea really came from um, a network of which Dr. Barbara is a part of um, in North America, so the United States and Canada. Um, um, a couple of them have done this uh, work already in a smaller scale and demonstrated that people who got given the decycloserine compound before TMS, before they have this treatment for depression, their response rates to this treatment doubled compared to people who got the placebo um, capsules. So that gives us a lot of encouragement that this might be a, a breakthrough to make this treatment more effective than just the 40%. Um, and, you know, we're um, running a multi-site trial led by Monash Alfred um, here in Melbourne, little Melbourne town. Um, and we have collaborators across South Australia, Queensland and coming on board Western Australia. This makes sense to me. I mean, fix the insulation before you plug the boombox back in, right? <laughs> I, I like it. I, I, I'm going great. to use that. That's I'm okay. going to use that. The example I use is like, you know, you have an inert catalyst that you might say like, you know, uh, some fuel or something you throw on the campfire before you light the spark. Mm. But I like that more. I like the boombox one more. Yeah. It's nice. It's kind of electrical. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like brain. Is it too early to start talking about results, Dr. Moto? I think so. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hold off on that. But if people wanted to know more about the trial and how they might be able to reach out and um, um, see if they might uh, uh, want to participate, um, it obviously is uh, it's it's um, it's free. Being a, a clinical trial, it's done um, uh, on St Kilda Road at one of our research centres, and um, you can find details on either clinicaltrials.gov or the Australian New Zealand Clinical Trials Registry, or ANZCTR, if you just look up TMS Trials Monash. 
Thanks, Dr. Moto. That's super exciting. Um, and I have heard on the grapevine that the treating team are really quite delightful. So um, you'll be well looked after. <laughs> it's, it's me. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, we're not biased in the studio at all. I, I love that declaration of interest. Yeah, yeah. right at the end there. <laughs> yeah. um, that's about all we have time for on radiotherapy this morning. We've filled your brains with, with magnetic... Pulses. We hope. Don't we worry. Hope. Well, never mind. That analogy is not going anywhere. In, in the very least, radio waves. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah let's do that. Yeah. Let's go with that. Um, it's been a pleasure seeing you, Dr. Perineum, Dr. Moto, and of course, Dr. Tracy Barber, all the way from Massachusetts. How lucky are we? I, I want to just mention again that if this has brought up um, some uh, questions for you about your own mental health or if you are wondering about getting a diagnosis for yourself or struggling with anything we spoke about at the start of the show. There are resources out there. There's Lifeline, Beyond Blue. But otherwise talk to your GP if you've got concerning mental health conditions or you're finding it hard to engage in your daily life. It's worth a, con- a discussion with your GP. They're there to help and, and mental health could sh- should really be taken seriously. Absolutely. It was World Mental Health Day on Tuesday, so yeah. timely. And all, with all that's going on in the world too, please do take care, listeners. We love you. Take yeah. it easy. We'll see you next week. Enjoy your Sunday. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.